If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 24, uh, page 884 in the Bible around you. Uh, we've been going through a series in Luke here at Providence for a while. We're actually in chapter 14, but last week we jumped forward to 19 for Palm Sunday. This week we're jumping forward to chapter 24 to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you, as I said earlier, if you are a guest with us, we are so glad that you are here. Uh, we recognize that there are people from all kinds of backgrounds in here today, and we are just delighted that you have chosen and, and, and we're honored that you're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with us, or at least hear a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus with us this morning. Um, so that's what we're here to do, and that actually is what we do every Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. We don't gather in here on Sunday mornings because we think we're better than other people. We gather in here on Sunday mornings because we know we're not better. We know that we're sinners. We know that we're guilty. We know that we are sin-sick, broken people who have no hope in ourselves, but have all hope in Jesus because of who He is and what He's done. The person and work of Jesus. That He is fully God, fully man, and that He lived a perfect, sinless life in our place because none of us have. And then He laid that life down in our place as a substitute payment for our sins. What we deserve, Jesus took for us in our place. Life, death, and then especially today, celebrating that glorious resurrection that validates, verifies all of it. And so what happens a lot of times then on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning in particular, is that this time turns into a time of uh, a lesson on apologetics, on the, the overwhelming evidence of the historicity of the resurrection. And there's a time and there's a place for that, and I'm going to sprinkle a little bit of that in here today, because if the resurrection is true, it's all true. And if the resurrection is not true, then none of it's true. The Bible admits this. The Bible makes this claim. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And so that's what we're playing with here this morning. When we talk about the resurrection, we're talking about the doctrine upon which Christianity rises or falls. It's the resurrection. We're not talking preferences. We're talking fact or fiction. Those are the two choices. And so what happens a lot of times then on Easter Sunday mornings, it turns into kind of like just closing arguments in a court case, laying out and being very real with you, the overwhelming evidence of the truth of the resurrection. And like I said, there's a place for that, and we'll hit on that just a little bit today, but that's not what we're going to focus on, because sometimes I think we turn this day into an argument for the historicity of the resurrection, and in doing so, sometimes we don't dwell enough on the hope that the resurrection verifies. And it's that that I want to talk about today, the hope that the resurrection verifies. And I want you to see whether you are a long-term Christian, just kind of thinking about the things of Christ, or you don't care at all. You're just here to get that weird person who kept inviting you to stop inviting you. Wherever you're at in this, even if it just help you in trivial pursuit someday, I still want you to see, just as Jesus laid out to His disciples after the resurrection, 
that the Bible is not a series of disconnected morality tales of be good like Johnny and be good like Jimmy over here. And it's not a list of rules that we are to obey to try to you know, make ourselves good with God. But that the Bible is a story. And it is one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it is one story. And it is a story that is still being rolled out today and that every single one of us in this room and on this planet is a part of. What I'm talking about is something that's known as the meta-narrative, the big story of reality, of life, of existence. Why we're here. The big story that explains all of it. And it's this that Jesus explains to His disciples after His resurrection in what had to be the greatest Bible study ever. And so this morning, we're going to try to eavesdrop a little bit in on that Bible study and hopefully connect maybe some disconnected dots of the story that you may have and connect them together. And so let's go Luke chapter 24, again, page 884. As you're turning there, know what's going on is Jesus's completely disfigured body has been buried. And on the cross, he died a undignified humiliating death, stripped naked, beaten and bloodied, hung on a cross between two criminals, a cross that was frequently used, so it was already blood-stained, feces-covered. This is what our Savior hung on. Undignified. Humiliating. And so some of His followers, some ladies, wanted to at least bring some dignity to His burial. Even as they're heartbroken because he obviously isn't who he claimed to be because he's dead. And so wanting to bring some dignity to this you know, tragic story of a false Messiah, they want to anoint his body with spices and oils. But before they could do that, the sun set on that Friday and the Sabbath began. So they had to wait. And so now it's the first morning after the Sabbath. They're on their way to the tomb. Chapter 24, verse 1, here we go. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, this is the ladies, went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Don't read over that too fast. This is a massive stone. The Gospel of Mark tells us they were worried about how they were going to get this thing moved. See, that in that day, like we have topsoil, we bury people, but there they had to carve into rock and they would roll the stone away and put a body in and then shut it and then someone else and they'd put another body in, whole families, huge burial chambers. But the rock was huge and it's rolled away even though there were Roman guards standing by. I'll let you just play with that and try to figure out how that might have happened. We won't spend time on it. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered His words 
And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Because Judas is out. It's not twelve anymore. Judas hung himself. Fell from the tree and burst open in the field. Field of blood. You can read about that in one of the other Gospels. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so there they are Sunday morning, grieving over the death of Jesus and broken because apparently he was not what they hoped he would he was or who he claimed to be. And so they, just like most of the world today, believe that Jesus was dead and in the tomb. But when they got there. There weren't nobody home. The grave, the tomb was empty. The body was gone. And just to make sure we're all on the same page this morning, when the Bible speaks about the resurrection of Jesus, it's not talking about an ethereal, mystical, spirit-like, ghost-like resurrection. Right? It's not even talking about a metaphorical resurrection. When the Bible speaks of the resurrection, it is talking about a literal, physical, right, heart-pumping, blood-flowing Breathing oxygen, bodily resurrection. That Jesus was dead on Friday afternoon. He was killed on Friday afternoon. And He was dead from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning. And then on Sunday morning, He stopped being dead. That's what we're talking about. Just as He and the Scriptures said He would do. And so that's why the body's gone. Because He's alive. I mean, this is one of the major differences between Christianity and all other religions that that follow a person. For example, Jews follow Abraham. And you can go to Hebron, all right? And his tomb is there. Buddhists follow Buddha. And you can go visit some of his relics in Sri Lanka. Muslims follow Muhammad. And you can go to his tomb in Medina. And if you go to these places, you know who's in Abraham's tomb? Abraham. You know who's in Buddha's tombs? Buddha. You know who's in Muhammad's tomb? Muhammad. You know who's in Jesus' tomb? Nobody. It's empty. There ain't nobody in Jesus' tomb. See, we do, as Christians, do not follow a dead religious founder. We follow a living man and his name is Jesus and he is Lord, God, King, Savior. He is Christ. We do not follow a dead founder. We follow a living, breathing man. Fully God, fully man. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time like just rolling out the evidence. We can do that another day. But there are, covering this text, there are a couple of just kind of historical arguments here. And so I do want to touch on them briefly since we're going through this text. Because if you are making this story up, 
If it is just a great big giant hoax and you're trying to fool everybody. All right, if that's what you're trying to do. And the disciples secretly knocked the Roman guards off, you know, out. Maybe they knocked them off. I don't know. And they rolled the stone away. All right. If this is the hoax you're trying to and they stole the body and they hid it away. If, if you're trying to pull out this hoax and just fool people then you're definitely not going to say that women were the first to find, you know, find the tomb empty. Because in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. The ancient historian Josephus said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because, quote, of the levity and boldness of their sex. That's what he said. Now, incidentally, it is Christianity that brought and, and began showing the world the full value and complete e equal value and worth and dignity of a woman as equal to a man before God. Equal worth, equal value. Celsus also, second century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as a witness referring to her as a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. So in that culture, all right, if you're just trying to pull off some sort of big hoax, women would have never been presented as the first eyewitnesses. The only reason you would put it that way is if that's the way it happened. Secondly, if, if this is all some big hopes, hoax that you're inventing, then you're going to make the heroes of the story, all right, the apostles, you're going to make them look a little better than the dumb idiots that they are here. Because they, init they initially consider it, verse 11, an idle tale. And they don't believe it. So if you're trying to write this hoax, you're going to make them look, and they're the heroes, you're going to make them look a little better than this. And then there's another one in verse 13. Look at it with me. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. About seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. And so, just real quick, let's chop down this idea that somehow, after a brutal beating, hanging on the cross, all right, with, on nails that have been driven through your hands and through your feet, hanging for six hours on a cross, being speared through the heart, that after all of that, Jesus wasn't actually dead. Professional executioners got it wrong. It's ridiculous. Romans killed people on the cross all the time. They had it down. Appian Way, 6,000 people. Spartacus. But even if that was the case, with the injuries that he had endured in his body, there's no way he could roll away this giant stone. And with nails having been driven through his feet... He's not walking seven miles to Emmaus. Have you ever stumped your toe? Go for a walk. See how that goes for you. 
And so the so-called swoon theory is just a ridiculous blind faith, turn your brain off idea. Let's keep going. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And and I love this. Jesus is going to start kind of carrying on with them like a, a father does his kids, just kind of carrying. Oh, tell me about it, though. You know what's going on. Look at it. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas, who may have been kin to Jesus, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. It's another word for the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Skip down to verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so what we see going on here is that we are spiritually blind until the Lord Jesus opens our eyes to understand the truth of His Gospel. And we understand the truth of His Gospel by the Scriptures. That's what He's referring to here with the Old Testament. And so He opens this up. to I mean, this had to be the, the, the coolest Bible study ever. You've got Jesus opening up the Old Testament here, specifically seeking to show them that, verse 44, everything, listen, written about Me, in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And so Jesus just starts unpacking this to them, how the Bible is about Him. Genesis. That's me, boys. Exodus. More about me. Leviticus. Guess what? That's me. Deuteronomy. You know it. That's me. On and on and on He goes. Because the Bible is all about Jesus. Genesis to Revelation. It's not be like this hero and be like this hero over here and learn this morality tale from this guy over here and then go back to being like this other hero over here. No, no, no. The message of the Bible is not be like a hero. It's that you need a hero. 
That you can't redeem yourself. You can't forgive yourself. You can't make yourself righteous before God. You need someone. You need a hero to do that for you. And Jesus is that hero. And so the Bible can be boiled down to four acts. If you want to know the story of the Bible, the great big story of life, reality, in the universe, you can boil it down to four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so in the beginning, an eternal, self-existing God, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, chose to create a universe and a world, and He made it perfect. Nothing was wrong. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no sorrow. There was no regret. There was no worry. No pain. Just absolutely perfect in every way. And God gave them one rule. Do anything you want. Just one thing. Don't eat from this one particular tree. But then Adam and Eve decided to do what we do all the time. And didn't believe that God was for them. They, they, they said, well, if God really loved us, He would not keep that from us. He would let us have that, that thing that he, he won't let us have. He, he's not really for us. He's keeping something. He's not good. And so I, I know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get that thing. I'm going to go after that thing. Never thinking that, you know what, God is really, really good and He's really, really loving and He made everything and so He probably knows how it works best so I'm going to trust Him that He's for me. No, 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 no. He's a great, big, old school, grumpy joy kill who's trying to keep things from me. He doesn't know what's best. I do. And so they went their own way. It really just boils down like we do, believing that we make a better God than God does. We'll go our own way. And so they did their own thing. They rebelled against God. They committed high treason against the God of the universe. And in so doing, sin entered the world. And the world was marred. It was broken. It was fractured. And so in came the results of sin. Death and disease. And natural disasters. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunamis. Murder. Violence. Cancer, greed, poverty, starvation, unwanted children, trafficked individuals, racism, genocide, school shootings, terrorism, war, rape. We could go on and on and on just reading the headlines of the day. The world is broken. And it started there. And as a result of that, all of mankind is now tainted and depraved and separated from God. This is creation and fall. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And if the story ended there, there would be no hope for mankind. But God in His infinite mercy chose to act. And so even there, Genesis 3, He Lays out that there's one coming who's going to do away with sin. He will be struck, but he will crush Satan and sin forever. 
And then he just starts rolling it out all throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 12, God shows up to an Iraqi pagan Gentile named Abram and says, I'm starting with you. You're going to be mine. I'm going to fix this whole thing. Your name's going to be Abraham, and I'm going to give you a family. And out of that family, I'm going to bring one who will be the Messiah out of your line. And he's going to make everything that's gone wrong right again. He's going to deliver us from sin. And so he gave this great promise of hope. A promise of hope that He was bringing hope to the world through the promised Messiah who would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And so you just keep going on. Later, God hears the cry of the people of Israel in Egypt. And He delivers them. But their hope is still not satisfied. He gives them the law, but their hope's not satisfied. He They enter the promised land, but their hope's not satisfied. He gives them the sacrificial system, but their hope's not satisfied. God sends them prophets. They refuse to listen. They go into exile. And then there's 400 years of silence. And it seems as if the hope has failed. It's unfulfilled. And then all of a sudden... Out of the quiet, there is a crazy voice of a homeless man who PETA would despise because he wore fur. Out in the desert, crying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist shows up. Like the whole the Old Testament has been, he's coming, hope's coming, hope's coming, hope's coming. John the Baptist shows up and he is, it's here. Hope is here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and to take away our sin. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect, spotless life and then willingly, folks, willingly laid it down. Like he didn't have to. John 10 talks about how he has authority to lay his... He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And so in all that we're reading, when the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, make sure you understand this isn't stuff that's happening to Jesus. This is stuff He's carrying out for you and for me. That we might be delivered. We might be set free from her sin. He's actively carrying it out. This is His love and His kindness towards you and me. And so on the cross then, Jesus, God in the flesh. Feel the weight of this. Philippians 2 talks about how He humbled Himself to become a man. And He humbled Himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And so what happens on the cross out of love. He didn't have to do this. Out of love, Jesus took the wrath of God that I deserve and you deserve for our sin. Out of love on the cross, all of my sin and my guilt and my shame and my brokenness was taken off of me and it was placed on Jesus. And Jesus suffered and died in my place for my sin and He gives me His righteousness and it's transferred over to me so that now I stand clean before God the Father, not on the basis of anything I've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's our hope. And it is a secured hope because He rose again. 
He's not in the grave. But Good Friday ends with His death. And it looks like, for a moment, that maybe He's not the one. That He doesn't have power to forgive. That He isn't bringing good news. And so once again, in this grand story, it looks like hope is lost. But to quote S.M. Lockridge, it's only Friday. Sunday was coming. And so then Sunday morning comes. The ladies go to the tomb. Nobody's there. Just some angels. And they ask them, why are you here? Why, why, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And he shows up to his disciples and they have the world's greatest Bible study. In all of this, Jesus is doing this Bible study. He's just laying out before these guys that he is the one. And he's laying out how God's plan is working perfectly. Because now, thanks to the cross, people see the Father's commitment to judge and destroy sin. And because of the resurrection, people see the Father's power to put an end to death. Death's on the clock, y'all. It's not going to exist forever. It's going to go extinct. When Jesus returns, there will be no more death. No more sin. Everything will be made right. And so understand well, resurrection, all right, this day is not about just vague hope and life after death. The resurrection is the ultimate verification of Jesus' good news. It verifies it. And it's the ultimate indication of Jesus' power. He can be dead and make Himself not dead. I can lay my life down. And I have authority to take it up again. His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as John Ortberg puts it, is the only reason why 2,000 years after Rome crucified Jesus, Christians, which means little Christs, Number in the billions. And Little Caesars is just the name of a pizza place. (laughs) This is the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and a coming restoration. It's happening. All around us. I mean, just follow the progression we just went through. 6,000 years ago, he told Abram, I'm going to fix this. And he stayed true to that. Jesus has come. He's died for our sins. He's resurrected. He's ascended back into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting to come again. And He saves anyone who would trust in Him. And people are doing that by the billions over the last 2,000 years. Over the last 6,000 years. By the billions, people were becoming believers today, being saved, being rescued, being transformed, being freed from addictions, being freed from habits, being freed from sin. Lives changed for the glory of God and the good of mankind. It's happening. What He promised is happening. Hope has come. And do you know where it's all going to end? How this is all going to wrap up? With people 
from every nation and every tongue and every language, every people group, all who believe, all right, who say, I have no righteousness of my own, but if you will give me yours, I will take it, Jesus. All who believe, standing in front of the throne, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. New heaven, new earth coming down. No more injustice, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. All that's gone wrong made right. Because the great exclamation point that's in the middle of the story, Jesus rose again. Because of that, death is dead. And as the hymn goes, love is one. Christ has conquered. To believe the good news. In Christ, you are forgiven, is his cry over all who have repented and believed. So if you've repented and believed, rejoice. And if you haven't, repent and believe. Jesus stands ready and willing to save any and all who will come to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you for the salvation you have brought to the world, the hope that you've brought, the, how you've been true to your promise, how you're carrying it out, how everything you do is done out of a desire for your glory and for our good. Your love is infinite for us. Infinite. Such that you would send your Son to die in our place and give us righteousness that we could never earn. None of this we deserve. We deserve none of this. But you're so good. You're so loving that you offer it to any and all. And we bless you and we praise you and we sing to you and we cry out to you in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our hurt and in the midst of our sin and in the midst of our pain that you, oh God, are King and Christ and Savior and Lord. And we call on you. Save us. And we rejoice in the salvation that you have given at great cost to you. And we rejoice that it's finished. We rejoice that the resurrection, that the empty tomb stands as an eternal reminder that it is finished, that you have accomplished it. We love you. We praise you. Oh, you're good to us. In Jesus' name.